Amen. Well, good morning. Again, my name is Liz Joyle. I'm part of the preaching team here at the Journey Community Church. Just want to welcome you again this morning. Glad you're here. I'm glad to be here as we are continuing on in our sermon series titled Best Supporting Actors, Lesser Known Characters in the Bible, and really the Old Testament. Now, we've talked the last few weeks about how the Old Testament is the first three-fourths of the redemptive story of the Bible. It's before the ultimate redemption that Jesus brings. So, before that redemption, there's grit, there's grime in the Old Testament, there's beauty, but there is also violence and things that are hard to read. So we need to remember to see the Old Testament as part of the larger story, or else we can come to a part of it and think, What the heck is this? And we need to remember that even in the darkest times of the Old Testament, God was at work writing the redemptive story of his people. So, so far in this series, the first week we looked at Ruth, and then last week we looked at Mordecai, and today we come to another lesser known character in the Old Testament, Deborah. Now, if you're like me, you may think, oh, Deborah, I know her. She's not that lesser known. She was one of those judges who ruled Israel for a time in the Old Testament. But then I realized, huh, actually that is all of the information I know about Deborah. (laughs) My pool of information is done. Um, I guess maybe she does actually fit in this sermon series. So maybe you've heard of Deborah, and maybe you haven't at all, and that's fine. Um, Have no worries, because many of us are right there with you. So just to introduce Deborah a little bit, we find her in the book of Judges, which chronologically comes after the narratives of Moses and Joshua in the Old Testament. So the book describes the history of Israel, God's people, from the death of Joshua to the rise of Samuel. And now the book takes its name from the judges of Israel, of which Deborah was one. But these judges were more than just judicial arbiters, like we may think of the term today. They were leaders and deliverers of the people of Israel. So we're going to start today by actually reading from Judges chapter 2, even though it's not our main text, because it's a passage that explains the time period and sets the scene for the judges really well. So you can turn to Judges 2 in your Bible if you have one. In the Pew Bible, it begins on page 170, except for a few Bibles in the back, it's on um, page 271. So 170 for most of the Bibles here. So Judges chapter 2, and I'm going to start with verse 6. You can follow along. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Haras in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. 
they followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from their way, the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Man, this was a dark time in the history of God's people. God's people continued to be disobedient to the Lord, but then God in his kindness would deliver them from the hands of these enemies after they cried out to him. But they would soon disobey again. So the darkness of this time also describes these stories recorded in Judges. There is violence, there is betrayal, there is oppression, there's treatment of people as property in these stories. Bad stuff, and some of it's pretty R-rated and graphic. And this is when it's helpful to remind us again that a lot of things in the Old Testament are descriptive and not prescriptive. Now that means that events and situations are being described as they were, and many times without commentary. Today in our culture, when we hear or see something that's not the way it's supposed to be, we often cry foul, but that's not the way that narrative was written in the Old Testament. Just because there isn't a character that says, hey, that's wrong, at different points, doesn't mean that the behavior being described is acceptable. So we have many times when the state of Israel and how people treated one another is described. It's very descriptive, but we should not read that it's prescriptive or that it's something that you should do, something that's prescribed. Now, the fourth judge, depending on how you count, could be the third, we are introduced to in Judges is Deborah, the only female judge that is talked about in Judges. She stands out as the most godly of all the judges. She is powerful, she is determined, she's an upright ruler and leader who has God-given abilities and God-given opportunities to lead. Now we find Deborah just a couple chapters later than we just read in Judges 2. We find her in chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Judges. Now these two chapters tell the same story in different ways. Chapter 4 is the narrative of the story and chapter 5 is actually a poem. Now the poem tells us more details that the narrative leaves out. So it's actually a helpful companion to the story. And this poetic song in chapter five that Deborah sings is not uncommon in the Bible, but it's the only one like it in the book of Judges. So you can turn to page 172, and let's start reading chapter four together. 
Chapter four, verse one. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidus, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes settled. Decided. So let's just pause for a minute. Again, we see um, this cycle of judges. The Israelites did what was evil um, after the previous leader, in this case, Ehud, died. The Lord gave them over to their disobedience and punished them by selling them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan who had an army commander named Sisera. We've got a lot of characters here. Now Sisera and his 900 chariots oppressed the Israelites and they cried out for help. So we're then introduced to Deborah, a prophet who the Lord speaks through. Now we also see that Deborah, she's described as a wife as her husband is mentioned. It's common for people to be described as who they're related to. Now Deborah is also described as a judge. She was, quote, leading Israel at that time. This can also be translated as she was judging Israel at that time. She holds court. And she's actually the only judge where it's mentioned that she actually does this task of settling disputes. So let's continue on in verse 6, chapter 4. Deborah sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. Okay, so again, Deborah, she's a, a prophet, she's a mouthpiece of the Lord. He has spoken to her, the Lord has spoken to her, and she communicates this message to Barak, the commander of the army. And what a message it is. So 10,000 men, she says take 10,000 men, may seem like a lot, but they're actually nothing compared to Jabin's army and his 900 chariots. So one commentator that I read about this actually described how 900 chariots fitted with iron, as they're described, could cut through 10,000 men like a knife through butter. Okay, that's a helpful picture. This is what we're up against here. So now in verse 8, Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. Verse 11, there's a little interesting aside that will make a little more sense later. But verse 12, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Herosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. 
Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So here we see Barak doing exactly what Deborah told him to do. Verse 15, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin king of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenite. This is who we had been introduced to in verse 11. So Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the pentag through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man that you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there Sisera lay with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Well, what a story. Jael, this woman, drove a tent peg through the ruthless oppressor's head. Who does that? Well, Jael does. Barak's armies are victorious, and Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite enemies, is taken down by a tent peg at the hand of a woman. Now, perhaps this is just a helpful time for a reminder that this is one of those times when the Bible is descriptive and not prescriptive. Please don't let your takeaway today be that you should go drive a tent peg through your enemy's head. That will not go well for you. But we do see here that um, the people of Israel have been delivered. So we're not going to read through um, chapter 5 together right now, but if you flip to it, um, you can see that chapter 5 ends with, then the Lord, the land had peace for 40 years. So the cycle of judges in this story is complete. Disobedience which leads to oppression, which leads to crying out to the Lord, which leads to deliverance and peace. But then if you look, the very beginning of chapter 6 begins with the same sentence that chapter 4 did. The Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so it begins again. So there we have it. A short but dramatic story of the judge Deborah. So there's a lot that is in here, um, but there are three main themes that I want to draw our attention to um, today from the life and leadership of Deborah. So first, Deborah did not go about it alone. 
She was a team player. So there are other aspects of her leadership that we could talk about, but one part of her leadership we really do need to, um, to highlight, and that was that she was a team player. In every other story in the book of Judges, from the first judge, Othniel, um, before to the last judge, Samson, there is one single human hero of the story. But that is actually not the case here. Now, even though Deborah is the judge and the ultimate leader of Israel at that time, Deborah is one of three main characters in this narrative. Deborah, Barak, and Jael. Now, the campaign against the enemy leader Sisera is initiated by Deborah, carried out by Barak, and rounded off by Jael, as we saw. Now, just one of them did not and could not have done the whole thing. It's a team effort here. Now, let's take a little bit closer look at Barak. Now, Barak sometimes gets a bad rap because of his initial response to Deborah that we read. If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. It can seem like he's showing a lack of faith. But Barak is actually not faithless. I think we can think back to Moses, who said something similar to the Lord. In Exodus 33, we find the same kind of command, the same kind of reaction, and the same kind of response. The Lord himself says to Moses to lead his people out of oppression. Moses says, if if your presence doesn't go with me, don't send us. And the Lord's response is very much like Deborah's here. Okay, I'll go with you. Moses knows that he's toast without the Lord's presence. And similarly, Barak recognizes that Deborah is the Lord's anointed, and he wants her presence with him in this battle. We're not actually seeing cowardice from Barak, but faith. Faith to go forward in a battle that on paper he would surely lose, but to go forward because the Lord was with him. So Barak is a character, the character in this story who's actually mentioned again in the New Testament in Hebrews 11, sometimes called the Hall of Faith. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament begins chapter 11, this will be on the slide, with now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And the chapter goes on to describe Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and other grandfathers of the faith who had faith. And then we come to verse 32 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. This will also be on the slide. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Barak is the one who was included here. And this is nothing about Deborah. Remember, she is known as one of the most godly judges. She is clearly the Lord's anointed. The Lord speaks through her. She heard from the Lord and communicated to Barak, who faithfully carried out the instructions. And Jael finished Sisera off. 
This leadership was a team effort. Now, I think Deborah was ashamed or depressed because she wasn't the commander of the army. And I don't think she would be upset that she wasn't listed in Hebrews 11. Commanding the army wasn't her gift. Barak was better at that, and she partnered with him. But Barak couldn't have done this without Deborah's prophetic leadership in his life. As we grow as a church, we need to continue to partner with one another. Too often, I think leadership is seen as there being one person who knows how to do everything, but things go so much better when we release each other to use our gifts. It's okay that I'm not great at some things because other people are better at them. And I don't, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can, I can look down on myself because of a, gift, of a gift that I see that somebody else has that I wish I had, and I can focus on that instead of using the gifts that I do and looking around for who has the gifts that I lack and asking them for help. So again, we see here that leadership carrying out what God has commanded and prophesied as a team effort. Now the second theme that I want to draw out of this passage is the theme of the expected versus the unexpected. The story of Deborah weaves these two strands throughout it. First, we see a very, very expected enemy. The Canaanites were the people most mentioned in the Old Testament as Israelites, of, um, as enemies of the Israelites. To see them listed at the beginning of the chapter as the enemies of this story is very expected. However, it's then very unexpected to find Deborah as the leader of Israel. Again, she's the only female judge mentioned in Judges. She was a very unexpected leader. So we've talked about this cycle that there is in Judges of disobedience, oppression by enemies, crying out to God, and then deliverance by a judge. So we have a very expected cycle. We see that cycle here. And there's further similarity and expectation. In the chapter before, the judge Othniel thrusts a knife into the enemy. And again, here in this chapter with Deborah, the tent peg is thrust into Sisera's head. It's actually the same Hebrew word used, um, even though in this translation in English it's often um, translated as drove, because that's what we do, we drive a a tent peg. So again, the enemy is expectedly killed in a pretty gruesome manner. You should actually read the story of Othniel in the chapter before. See an equally crazy demise of an enemy leader. I'll leave that to you, though. So an expected violent thrust, but again, an unexpected deliverer, the woman, Jael. And that brings us to the ultimate expected and unexpected theme. As expected, as we see continually throughout Scripture, God keeps his promises. Very expected that God keeps his promises. But the unexpected is this, how he does it. It is expected that God will keep his promise and deliver Israel here. But it is unexpected how he will do it. Even Deborah, who heard from the Lord herself that God was going to deliver Israel, likely did not know exactly how he was going to do it. Sometimes for us, I think obedience at first can be 
easy. I don't know if that's a good word or not. Yes, I will go, Lord. Here I am, Lord. Send me. I surrender all. We expect God to come through for us, but we often lose hope when it happens or doesn't happen the way we expect it to. Again, Barak may seem to be questioning Deborah and his interaction with her at first glance, but then why is he mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11? Because he still did it, even though the overwhelming evidence says there's no way this is going to work out. 10,000 men have no chance against 900 chariots fitted with iron. Like many, or maybe all of you, I have a current situation in my life where things are, shall I say, not the way that I would like them to be. One time, as I was praying about this hard situation, I thought of the words from a worship song that say, beauty out of ashes. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a uh, song called Ever Be, and the full lyrics in that section are talking about the Lord, and they go like this. You father the orphan, your kindness makes us whole. And you shoulder our weakness, and your strength becomes our own. Now you're making me like you, clothing me in white, bringing beauty from ashes. And I thought, yes, that's encouraging. Beauty out of ashes. I thought that sounded great. Beauty out of ashes. All right, I'm ready to face this giant in my life. But then, time went on. And like many of you are doing now, I'm still slogging away in the ashes, waiting for that beauty. Any time now, Lord, any time. And I started to get frustrated at God, at people. I wasn't seeing that beauty that I was waiting for in this situation. And then I realized I wanted that promise of beauty out of ashes to look a very certain way. And I didn't even realize this was the case. I was like, Lord, you said beauty out of ashes. And that's what I expected. But what is unexpected is the way that he's going to do that. And why is that? So that I can constantly hold on to the Lord to be more like him in his kindness and holiness. Much like the song that this, that, that line comes from. As I hold on to him and I wait for his promise, I grow closer and closer to him and am transformed by him as I realize how desperately I need him and need him to work in this situation. Do you have a situation in your life where you're losing faith and hope? First, I think we need to make sure that we're correctly diagnosing the promise of God. The promise to Barak from God through Deborah was go, take your small army and lead it up to Mount Tabor and I will lead Sisera into your hands. That's it. God didn't say, I'll bring confusion to the enemy troops or their chariot wheels will get stuck in the mud or the river will flood and overtake them. Barak had to trust God for the how. So again, what's the actual promise of God in our life situations? It may not be victory over sickness or resolution in a situation anytime soon. But maybe, maybe the promise is the Lord will be with you. The Lord will carry you through this trial. The Lord will deliver you. 
The Lord will have the ultimate victory. We often need to surrender our own timeline and outline of events that we think will lead to the promise being fulfilled, even if it's a pretty good plan. Otherwise, we'll end up disappointed, grumpy, and distant from the Lord. I know that that's what can happen for me. Barak is in the hall of faith in Hebrews because he completely acted out of faith. He expected God to come through even though the manner of victory was unknown or unexpected. He went into a battle he would surely lose on paper but had faith that God would bring the victory that he promised. And we need to go a little further with this because faith in Jesus isn't just being patient that we will, he will work something out for you in this life. There is no formula like that, and we know that some of the things that we pray for do not get answered with healing or hope. Sometimes we experience death and brokenness in relationship that isn't resolved. And that brings us to the passage in Hebrews right after Barak is mentioned. Right after all these giants of faith in the Old Testament are commended for the faith that they had in seeing God's promises through in their lifetime. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. It'll be on the screen. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Some of these extremely, extremely faithful people did not see victory in their lifetime, but they had faith. Some didn't receive their deliverance until after death. Do I have that faith? Do we have that faith? To hold on to God's promises of his presence with us, that he will hold us up and deliver us, even if it's not in this world, but the world to come. The expected is that God will prevail. He will win, and that is the good news The Lord has the ultimate victory, but the unexpected is how and when. It may be in ways that we don't expect or at a time that we don't expect. In the situation that I referenced to in my life, I'm still waiting for the resolution and the deliverance. I'm still slogging through the ashes, and I'm sure that many of you are too. And I don't mean to be depressing by saying this, but I may not see the resolution I want to see this year, or this decade, or in my lifetime. But what is faith for me in this? Remember Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. I want to be confident that the Lord is on my side and that he sees me in this situation. Now I am praying and I am working for resolution. And I'm not going to give up in hoping for healing and deliverance. That's not the message. 
But my faith is not in the resolution, but it is in Jesus, the ultimate deliverer. Our faith is not in the resolution, but it is in Jesus, the ultimate deliverer. And that brings us to the third theme to pick out today, deliverance. As we noted earlier, chapter 4 shows the leadership of Deborah and Barak with help from Jael and overcoming the enemy. But there is a fourth character in this story, and it's the Lord God. He orchestrated this whole thing, as you've probably picked up. Judges 4, 15. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. If we look at chapter 5, we see something even more. You can turn with me to Judges 5, starting with verse 19. And again, this is uh, poetic imagery. It's not narrative like chapter 4. Kings came, they fought. The kings of Canaan fought. At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they took no plunder of silver. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping go his mighty steeds. Curse Morose, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. The actual win in the battle was a flash flood from the Lord. And there was an angel of the Lord at the battle too. It was not the might of Barak's armies. It was the Lord that fought for the Israelites. And we see that the Canaanites were swept away by the rising of a river, much like in Moses' time when the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea. God is the great deliverer in this story. And this is the point of judges, of people like Deborah. We have this dark time of the people of Israel when they continually disobeyed, but God had mercy and didn't let them go into extinction when he could have. He delivered them for a time by these human judges. But the book of Judges points forward to the perfect judge, Jesus, who was yet to come at that time. The one who can once and for all and finally for all time bring deliverance, which he does. John 16, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. By all means, we have to work and strive and pray for righteousness and justice and deliverance for ourselves, from our personal issues and situations, and for societal ills and injustices. But do not lose heart if things are not resolved in your lifetime. How depressing if that were our only hope, earthly resolution. But Jesus left his perfect and comfortable and beautiful life in heaven to come down and be with us and rescue us from sin and death. He took it all on, all of it, all the brokenness and sin and injustice that the world could throw at him. He lived it, and not only that, he destroyed it by dying for us. He took the weight and the wages of sin and death on his shoulders, on his back, and took our punishment. He died a death he didn't need to so that we could live a life that we didn't deserve with him in heaven. 
The book of Judges with stories like Deborah's points forward to the coming of Jesus. Judges shows that human deliverance is only temporary. Remember, peace lasted for only 40 years after Deborah and Barak and Jael's triumph. Human deliverance does not last. But there is a hope, and that hope is Jesus. He has conquered death and sin and delivers our souls as well as our bodies. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word, for the entirety of Scripture that shows us this big picture of your deliverance. Thank you for saving us from sin and delivering us from evil. Would we live into that reality this week? Help us turn to you when we are in trouble and increase our faith as we trust in you in these situations in our lives where we need your deliverance. We need you, Lord. We need you to come through. I pray that you would work in each of our lives. We do pray for earthly deliverance, but we thank you, Lord, for heavenly deliverance. In Jesus' name, amen.